Welcome to the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast with your host, Mr. G. For those about to learn, we salute you. Hello, party people. Thank you for joining us on the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast. We are changing the world one classroom at a time. That classroom is your classroom. And as I mentioned in the last episode, we are going to have lots and lots and lots of amazing guests coming on the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast, and I am super excited for y'all. I mean, I'm always super excited, but this time I am especially super excited for y'all to listen to AJ Giuliani. So AJ has written plenty of really, really interesting books all about creativity in the classroom, about how to empower your students, how to help your students find their passions, explore their passions, discover their passions, which you know, I'm all about the passions. So this is perfect. And if you want your students to be able to unleash their creativity and to feel empowered and feel inspired, those are actually a bunch of AJ's book titles. So trying to throw those in there for y'all. He gives so many great examples of great advice, great ways to start discussions. And what I really took away from this interview that I did with AJ was all of the incredible strategies that you will gain to help bring out wild and really interesting discussions amongst your students where true learning is really going to take place, where you can increase how much your students are talking and how much they are discussing and learning from one another and not just you up in front of a room and explaining and lecturing and trying to teach all these things that are probably pretty cool, but how to have your students drive that learning and how to give them choice all in all, it's going to make the kids in your classroom feel so inspired, so empowered, and so ready to take on the world, and it will give them the skills to take on the world. So if that sounds pretty awesome to you, it sounds pretty awesome to me. If that sounds pretty awesome to you, then please give it the time to listen to this amazing episode of the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast. I know that you are going to gain so much from it because I gained so much from it. I wish I was still in the classroom so I could use all of these amazing strategies that AJ provides. Don't take my word for it. Listen to him. It's fantastic. So here we go. Interview with AJ Giuliani, amazing author. And here it is. Hey, AJ, thank you so much for joining us today. And I honestly, I'm so excited. I don't know where to start because all of your books and work is so inspiring and important. And really, one of the things that I noticed, one of the most powerful statements that I've noticed in your branding is if we want our students to change the world, we must change our classrooms to foster inquiry and innovation. And so this may be a little open-ended, but how do we change our classrooms to foster inquiry and innovation? And if you'd like to take the bigger picture approach, how do we create a classroom that gives our students the skills and mindsets that can change the world? Well, you know, thanks again for having me on. I think this is awesome what you're doing. And here's the deal is we have all these kids um, that are now in a world where they don't have to wait for anything, right? They live in this on-demand world where they don't have to wait any wait for anything. And uh, we bring them into school and we're basically saying, hey, we're going to tell you exactly what you need to do every step of the way. And so they don't have choice. Uh, they don't have time to create. Uh, and all they do is they jump through hoops and they learn to play the game of school. And so when they get to be uh, seniors and they're going on to college or in a career or different things like that, 
they find themselves at this crossroads of if someone's not telling them what to do, they aren't very sure what to do. And so I'd say the simplest thing for us to do as educators, as parents, as anything is let kids have some choice, let them wrestle with choice of what they want to make, create, learn, uh, what they want to explore and, and start from that point. You don't need to go really big out here and, and try to do all kinds of crazy things. Just start with choice because that's what being an adult is, is dealing with choice and making decisions. And if we don't give kids any choice, K through 12, uh, we're going to have a lot of unhappy adults on our hands in the next couple of years. For sure. And I think that that's a really important focus of what you're doing is thinking about how these kids are going to be adults. And they obviously, but that they are going to be the ones that create the future and not just the future, but I've noticed you said it's our future that our students and children are going to impact and transform and revolutionize. So how do we inspire these students? I know you just mentioned choice, but how do we inspire them to become these inventors and creators and innovators and the future leaders of tomorrow and really giving them the, these opportunities to find and pursue their passions so it's not just students being compliant or being engaged, but being empowered. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, there, there's two things at play here. Um, you know, part of, uh, part, I think the reason we, we want to inspire kids is we want them to have great opportunities, right. To do, to do things. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't think that necessarily it's, it's our role to, uh, to be these entertainers that get kids all fired up. I do think that we can provide some motivation as, as teachers and, and parents and leaders, but mostly I, I think that there's a big difference. A lot of times when we talk about inspiring kids and getting them excited, we're talking about a term engagement and engagement means getting kids excited about our content, our interests, our curriculum. But empowering students means giving kids the skills and knowledge to pursue their passions, their interests, their future. And so there's a big there's a big difference between engagement and empowerment. And in order to empower kids, um, we have to start with those basics, right? They they need to learn how to read. They need to understand <clears throat> these first principles of learning. But then they realize we need to give them opportunities to do something with what they know and what they can do. And that's the that's the big shift, which is Giving kids a multiple choice test is never going to be inspiring. Giving kids a worksheet is never going to be inspiring. Giving kids a chance to make something or solve a problem or connect with an authentic audience um, or work together as a team, that can lead to, to things that are inspiring because the kids will believe that it's both re meaningful and relevant to their lives. And, and that ultimately is what we want to do to inspire kids is we want to give them opportunities to learn that are meaningful and relevant. And if we do that, then the inspiration comes easy because it's, it's built in uh, to the kid's personality of what they're doing. If, if we're trying uh, every which way ourselves to inspire them, uh, then we're going to have to compete with YouTube and video games and Snapchat and all that kind of stuff. And then it's, it's very hard to get their attention. Right. That can, uh, that's not the kind of competition that you want to be up against. So I definitely agree with you there. So I guess, I'm curious as to when kids do become inspired and do find the things that drive them, what kind of changes do you see in the classroom and also outside of the classroom and how these things can affect their lives as a whole outside of just like removing it just this is education, but seeing it more holistically as a part of their life and their passions that are 
really spread outside of the classroom as well. So are you talking about like kind of what happens when kids are if find this passion of what they want what they want to do? Right, exactly. Like what have been the what's the impact that you've seen like not just in the classroom but throughout their whole lives? Like I imagine that it, that fire catches on and that they they uh they take it with them everywhere they go and not just in the in school. Yeah, yeah, I think they make look, I think that they make different different decisions in choices for themselves, right? Um, that are going to have a greater impact. I'll tell you about one of my students um, that I taught, I had his class and when I was teaching eighth grade and then I taught 10th grade again, and he's, he was a great kid. Um, and, and he did two things I thought that were really impressive. Um, the first thing is that, you know, uh, he came from a family of lawyers and he could have easily uh, went down the path and, and he started in college of going political science and, and thinking he was going to go that route. Um, but then because he had experienced running uh, in our high school, he had, he had an inquiry-based project where they ran a awareness campaign for human rights violations. And that ex experience uh, led him to really think, oh, maybe I'm going to law school to, to fight for the people of justice and everything. And then what he realized is that he had never really experienced a third world country, the injustices that he had created these awareness for, and so he ended up joining the Peace Corps. And I don't think it's for everybody, but, but what I think happens is when kids see that there's other ways to impact the world rather than climbing the corporate ladder, right? Uh, when, they, when they see that they can make a difference when they're in school, running a campaign for something, they realize that there's a lot more opportunity with their life to have impact instead of just kind of following the old, you know, tried and true, um, get good grades in school, get into a college, uh, do well in college, get an internship, get a job, and then just kind of keep climbing. I think they realize that there's a lot of different opportunities out there. And if our kids don't understand their, that breadth of opportunity, then I think we've done them a disservice in, in K through 12. For sure. So I always think about this in terms of, you know, like your four main subjects in high school, you've got English, you got math, you got science and social studies, and you can be really good at all four of those things. But if you don't want to become a mathematician or a scientist or, you know, an author or a journalist or a historian, which, you know, aren't always the sexiest types of jobs, it depends on your personality, obviously, but like, I personally don't know any mathematicians or I don't know. Right. So it's like, you can be really good at those things. Like I love math, but I never wanted to become a mathematician. So it was like, what am I doing with this? So how can we give kids more of those opportunities in school to see that breadth of all the different, to repeat myself, opportunities that are out there that aren't just limited to those four main subjects that are, you know, put on a standardized test and that are really kind of drilled home when they don't really offer up all of these really diverse and powerful and empowering job opportunities and career opportunities and passions that are out there. How do we bring those into the classroom when the curriculum doesn't always have those at the forefront? Well, you know, I would say I'm a big proponent of something like a genius hour, right? Which is, it's basically based on like kind of the practice that Google did with 20% of their, their time. They gave their engineers 20% of their time to work on whatever they're interested and passionate about. And with that 20% time, their, their engineers created all kinds of things like G Gmail and Google Earth. And it was all about them following their passions. 
and so you know when with with older kids and and different subject areas that 20% time is awesome and then kind of elementary younger kids the genius hour give them one hour a week um, to try to fit it in there really works and the cool thing about that is that these these kids have a time to find and explore what they're interested in but not just learn about it also create something about it and we can connect this to the standards and curriculum in a lot of different ways uh, our kids Kids reading, writing, speaking, listening, researching when they're doing this? Sure. Are they presenting, creating, analyzing? Sure. And that, that connects to all the different standards that we have out there. So I think some, sometimes we view curriculum as a you got to follow it step by step uh, when really curriculum is kind of just the blueprint to a building and how you, you design that building and what you put in there and what each room is is up to you as the teacher, the designer. And I think teachers a lot of times also can kind of figure out those areas and places of time that they have to do this type of creative work. You know, whether it's uh, during the weeks leading up to a holiday or a spring break where maybe they're gonna show a movie or two. Well, instead of doing a movie or two, why don't you do a cool design thinking project where kids are making and creating something? Uh, or at the end of the school year, during state testing, all these different times of periods of uh, what we kind of call dead time where not a lot happens because there's other factors. Perfect opportunities for teachers teachers to do these things. And above all, I think this is where the connection of teachers and administration um, comes into play. You know, if if administration sees how much kids are engaged and empowered and love doing this type of work, and they're going to also see the benefits, right? The kids are going to, I'd rather have an engaged and empowered kid take a test than some kid, kid that's bored out of their mind. And I think everybody would agree with that. Right. Uh, and so showing the benefits of you know, these are the things that we still got to deal with when we're in education and they're still there. Let's not say we got to throw them out the window because it's just not going to happen. Let's deal with our realities and make it work um, thinking and kind of creating inside the box uh, that we have to work with and and really kind of owning that uh, um, as a teacher. So I think that that really segues nicely into into some stuff that you talk about in launch where there's a lot of talk about creativity and giving teachers strategies to not just bring creativity into the classroom, but to make it a driving force behind the classroom. And even for teachers who don't really consider themselves creative teachers, I know that you give a lot of really great strategies on how these teachers can find their creativity and bring it out in their students as well. So I know you just touched upon that kind of dead time idea. Can you get into some more of these strategies for teachers who may think, well, I wish I was more creative? Because I hear that a lot, Just not just even with teachers, but just with people in general, they tend to downplay their creativity. And I think people are pretty creative. I think that they just need that that structure to work within sometimes. So if you could get into some more of those strategies on how to bring out that creativity for people that might say, well, I'm not that creative. Yeah. So I think that uh, we need a bigger definition of creativity first, right? Right. Like we definitely. Just, we need a bigger definition of creativity. I think, uh, you know, I, I ask teachers this often, hey, when you think of the term creativity, what do you think of? And they all say like art teacher or Mrs. Frizzle, right? They think of somebody that's, that is like this out there wild and crazy and that's not creativity. So in launch, John and I talk about the seven different uh, creative types. You know, we talk about the hacker and the engineer and the point guard um, and the astronaut and, and all these different types of, you know, the geek, all these creative types 
uh, that maybe isn't that wild and free Miss Frizzle type, but they're the one that wants to create new systems, or there's somebody who wants to break existing systems, or there's somebody that wants to bring a team together to do their best work, or there's somebody that wants to explore new, new avenues and territories and things online and things in person. And so there's all these different types of creative types. What happens is a lot of times we don't think we're creative because when we're given a creative project, it's actually not a project. It's a recipe. It's like, hey, we're going to do some project-based learning in the classroom. Kids, I want you to follow these 13 steps, and here's a rubric. And then as a teacher, you get 30 back of the exact same thing because you gave the kids a recipe, not a true project. So in launch, we share what the design thinking um kind of project structure is. We share what kind of the design thinking uh, process and cycle is. And this is the same process design thinking that Facebook uses when they're creating new apps, when uh, Apple uses to create the new iPhone, um, that IBM uses to create kind of new uh, Watson software, that Whole Foods uses when they want to redesign their entire store, that Amazon uses for single checkout. It's the same process. And the process starts <clears throat> from from a place of a looking, listening, and learning, and being aware of what's going on around you. Uh, and then it moves into a, a place where you start to ask a lot of questions and do some research until you understand what the process or problem is. From there, you brainstorm and navigate ideas. And after you're navigating different ideas, then you start to create a prototype. And after you create a prototype, then you try to, uh, with that, that prototype, highlight what's working, fix what's not, improve what you can, and then finally launch that idea, that product, whatever you've created to an authentic audience so it's not just about a grade. And that launch cycle, that design thinking process really enables kids of all shapes, sizes, and creative types and teachers of all different creative types to really unleash that creativity on the world in their classroom. So, I mean, I'm inspired right now just hearing you boil it down to such a really powerful and easy-to-follow method to bring out this creativity. So I guess I'm curious as to why isn't creativity that big of a priority in most schools today? Because obviously this is like – like you just you just ran off a long list of big, you know, game-changing organizations that are solving their problems using this creative design thinking, but it's not really very – prevalent in, in our school system. And we really should be giving our kids these kinds of skills and these kinds of methods to go about solving problems. So why isn't creativity and this kind of design thinking process, why isn't that a priority in most schools today? Why do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of reasons, right? There's, uh, there's just kind of the institutionalism, right? That happens. Um, the, the loss of version, which is, um, in very high-performing schools, uh, parents and teachers and the adults there and the kids um, are, are afraid to change and try something new because they think what they have is working pretty well and they're kind of scared of, of trying something new, right? Um, and then in, in lower-performing schools that are traditionally struggling, they're, they're working with mandates to, to try to get better test scores and stuff like that. Right. So those are kind of the, the big institutionalized. But when it boils it down, you know, I think that there's four questions that anybody who's listening to this needs to ask of themselves and of their organization and of their classroom. And your answers to these four questions 
are going to dictate whether or not you can do something creative in your classroom, something like using the design thinking process. Number one, what do you allow for in your classroom? Number two, what do you make time for in your classroom? Number three, what do you support? And number four, what do you praise and assess? Because a lot of people want to do creative work, but they don't make time for it. A lot of people want uh, kids to do creative, innovative things, but they don't really support it. Uh, a lot of people want to do different and new things in new ways, and yet they're not praising the new things. They're praising uh, test scores, and they're praising papers, and they're praising compliance, and so that none of this comes to fruition. And if you want a, to build a culture around these uh, kind of new ideas and innovative ways of thinking about teaching and learning, your culture has to be focused on uh, being a fail-forward culture of somebody that's not afraid to make some mistakes where everything's not going to be perfect the first time you do it. And you're going to learn a lot and grow a lot, uh, but it's also not going to look like the school that we always, we always knew and thought of. Well, that's for sure. I'm actually reading a book right now called uh, Anti-Fragile yes. by... Oh, have you read it? Yes, I read all three of us. Yes, yeah, so I actually got his uh his set for Hanukkah the the uh the full, I believe it's uh inserto is like his 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 he says it's all one yes. book and each thing yep. is a different volume. Uh -huh. and, yeah, and we've got um what's it called uh Skin in the Game is coming out soon, so I'm ready for that one to come out. So I'm reading Anti Fragile right now, and it reminds me of what you're saying about failing forward and how if you create a system that's like we can't fail at all. That makes the system very fragile and susceptible to, you know, failing eventually and failing pretty spectacularly. And when you allow for these little mistakes to happen, that's how learning takes place. And that kind of dynam dynamism allows for a lot of really interesting innovations and creativity to come out of that because you see what works, what doesn't work, and you're testing out different things. And really that experimentation can be at the heart of creativity. So that was just something that, that you said that really reminded me of this book that I'm reading. And I think that obviously you've, you've read, you know, you've read it. So you know that it has a lot of applications to a lot of different yeah. areas. And I think Nassim Taleb is, is really smart in pointing out all the different situations where we don't make time for the experimentation and our lack of not making time and supporting that type of work hurts us in the end. And uh, education's in that in that place right now, right? I mean, uh, 11, 11 white guys 150 years ago decided uh, what we should teach and when we should teach it, and we haven't really changed it. <laughs> it's crazy when you put it like that. You know, it's it's a uh, it doesn't make much sense, but that's what all the you know the regulation and the centralization of everything. Yeah, they didn't they didn't just... they didn't have cars. You know, they right. <laughs> that, that's how far away ago it was when when these decisions were made, and we've we've kept it the same. Just wild. Um, it's just just wild. So, I guess I I wanted to go back into this idea of of learning by choice, which is you know another one of your books. And in early childhood, especially, there's a heavy focus on student choice, but oftentimes it's very controlled choice, like. You know, do you guys want to walk back to your seats or do you want to gallop back to your seats? Or do you want to learn about dinosaurs or do you want to learn about giant reptiles that lived millions of years ago? So they think they're choosing something, but they're really choosing the exact same thing. And I noticed that that this book, Learning by Choice, is not just about choice and content, but it's also choice in instruction and technology and purpose and pace and order and assessment. And 
I can imagine that that could be a little overwhelming for teachers saying, wow, how do I give all that choice to my students? So I'm wondering if you could go into how that looks in the classroom and maybe a little bit of a model on how these conversations happen with your students when you're giving them these kinds of choices and how you pose these questions so they actually have a genuine choice and a control over the direction of their learning. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think it looks different in a lot of different grade levels, right? And a lot of different right. ages. Um, obviously, when the kids are older, you can kind of release the reins a lot more, um, but yet they're used to playing the game of school more. When they're younger, when you release the reins a little bit more, they're kind of all over the place, and so you want to bring structure to it. I, I would say this. Um, the, the learning by choice came out of a place where, you know, I had been talking about genius hour and giving kids 20% of their time or an hour a week to learn what they're interested in. And there's just so many teachers that said, I love that idea. I just don't have the time to do it. Right. And so I said, well, that's fine, but I think you still have the time to give choice. And so learning by choice is just 10 different ways that you can give choice. I wouldn't actually recommend giving all 10 at the same time. <laughs> it's just it's just 10 different ways, right? So if you say you can't, because Genius Hour and 20% Time is all about choice in content. So you choose what you what you want to learn. Uh, but maybe you can't choose the choice in content. You have to teach, you know, you're a biology teacher. You have to teach what's in biology. So maybe you choose the choice in assessment. How do the students demonstrate their understanding? giving them options. Maybe it's not just a multiple choice test or a paper. Maybe it's them creating a tutorial or a video. Maybe it's them creating a documentary project. Maybe it's them doing an interview podcast series like this, right? How can they demonstrate their understanding, giving them choice in different types of assessment? Then there's choice and pace. You know, why do we get, why do we teach every single kid at the same pace when some of them can learn something much quicker and others are going to take more time? And so, you know, the, the, the one that works really well for that is the flip classroom model where you give, where you give three tiers. And I think flip classroom can be butchered and done really wrong, but the three tier model works really well. So kids learn something the night before they're watching a video, they're reading something, whatever it is the night before. And when they come in that day in the class, the teacher gives them a pre-assessment, five questions. The kids that score a five out of five on the pre-assessment, you put them into the expert group and they're going to go do some challenge-based stuff. The kids that score a three or four out of five, uh, they are kind of in the middle of the group. They're going to work in partners. And the kids that score a one, zero, one, or two, uh, they're in the group that needs some specific help from the teacher. Now, that kid, the kids that score a zero, one, or two, you make them watch the video again, get kind of the basics again. While they're watching the basics again, that teacher is getting that third challenge group ready on whatever kind of expert level activity they're doing. And they're working with the middle group that are in partnerships, working on problems or creating different things. As soon as they get them going, then they go back to that first group. And they try, the whole goal of this is to get the kids that are in that first group all the way to the third group by the end of the class period. The, th the second and third group are going to be moving well along and maybe into the next type of homework or activity. But what you've done is you've stopped. You've stopped the thing that normally happens in school, which is the kid doesn't do the homework. They fall behind. You never bring it up with them. And they just keep falling more and more behind. It's a snowball, but like a backward snowball. And so that choice of giving kids choice and pace of how fast they're moving and who you're going to help more is really just one of the strategies that we share in that book to say choice doesn't have to be all about content. It can be about a lot of different things.
Well, that was awesome. I'll tell you, I've never heard anybody make flipped classroom sound so exciting to the point where like I want to go and try <laughs> that kind of stuff right away. I've always heard it just like really rote and like just like this is the new trendy thing, but it's always kind of bogged down in like almost a one size fits all approach to the flipped classroom, which really shouldn't be the case. But that's always been whenever I read it on any type of big education website, that's always what I end up taking away from it. And I think that the way that you just described it, not only is it exciting, but it also makes sense to parents who yep. don't always know what a flipped classroom is. So I always find that interesting. Like, you know, I worked in really a low income part of Oklahoma City. And if I went and told my parents, like, we're doing flipped classroom, they would not know what that is. And it wouldn't mean anything to them. But if I could explain it the way you just did, <laughs> yeah. then that's really exciting. And they're saying, wow, that sounds awesome. Like, it sounds like everybody is getting what they need in that situation. Um, and so I guess that leads me to something that I read on one of your recent blog posts about, it said, whoever is doing the majority of the talking is doing the majority of the learning. And I really like this idea that, and I think a lot of teachers hear it and it rings true, but a lot of, sometimes we may not know how to structure a lesson to allow this to happen. So how can teachers increase that ratio of student talk to teacher talk? So students are talking more and thus learning more instead of being lectured and you know so they're in more discussion and you know what i mean so yeah i think you know you basically if you ask teachers to say hey you do you want my kids do you want your kids in your class to be more engaged and everybody's like yes i want my kids to be more engaged and if you ask teachers normally what does engagement look like almost all of them will say active participation right um and and yet we talk about these things but don't give some practical strategies so i gave three um specific strategies to get kids talking more the right way. I mean, we don't want kids just kind of sharing a cat story, right? We want them talking about what we're learning into a, a level of, of depth or, or kind of following a reason. So uh, the first way I say is by playing a discussion game. You know, kid comes into class and on their desk is an envelope and it has a red card and a yellow card and a blue card and a pink card. And each of those cards represent a different type of discussion uh, that they can start. One card is a statement, another card is an I think statement, another card is an I know statement, and another card is a question, right? So as you're having a class discussion, kids are holding up the cards and playing the cards, and they're getting points for the cards. And they get more points for the I know because they have to back up the I know with some evidence or something like that, some analysis. And kids love it because it's gamified. Teachers love it because they can say, hey, guys, you know, we've been having a discussion for 10 minutes and all I mean is I think or I feel. How can we get some I know question, you know, I know statements in here? And what it does is it sets you up for that next stage in terms of scaffolding, which would be a fishbowl discussion. Fishbowl discussion is the next kind of level. Kids have already played the discussion game. They understand what a discussion is supposed to look like. And now you get four or five desks in the middle of a room and then you have a whole outside circle of desks surrounding you have discuss if they're if it's real little kids have them talk for one minute in there if it's older kids have them talk for four five six seven minutes in there nobody on the outside of the circle and the teacher cannot talk it's just those kids in the middle of fishbowl talking four minutes is up get them out another four or five kids in and on and on here we go now everybody's participating the kids on the outside are taking notes of what the kids on the inside are saying and everybody knows that they're going to be a part of the conversation that leads me to the next level, which would kind of be the step three in this, which would be a symposium. Looks just like a fishbowl, 
but you give kids a week to prepare with their group of four or five of them, and now they talk for 10 minutes in the middle, and then after their 10 minutes is up, the people on the outside grill them with questions like stump the teacher, like they're the experts, and so now you have this kind of whole full class discussion uh, that very much looks like a Socratic seminar and it gets kids talking. The teacher's not really doing any of the talking. They're just kind of recording and checking out and guiding as they as they can. And to me, my instant thought hearing all that is that is learning. Like that is true learning right there. Um, you you yes. can't look at something like that and say these kids yeah. are not – I mean they are – that is where that is where it really happens is when they get into these discussions, they figure out what it is that they actually believe about these different ideas and they have to support it with evidence and things that they have actually spent some time thinking about. And maybe they're posed with a question that they hadn't thought through, but that's that's where the real learning happens is in those kinds of conversations. So I really I hear that and I'm just like, man, that sounds awesome like that is just really empowering to sit back and watch and if i was the teacher in that situation i wouldn't want to talk i wouldn't want to say anything i would just want to listen and and be you know just right. smile you know be proud of, of what i'm hearing because it sounds like that is just where where the learning happens as i said so really really cool i'm glad that you just went into that little three-step process there because i think a lot of teachers will benefit and even early childhood teachers can take that model and make it work for their classrooms and it's just a great way to to get students leading the discussion not just leading the discussion i feel like that's like a cliche because that's so much more than leading the discussion that's like students are the discussion they are creating everything that's happening um yes yes they're, they're, an, active, they're an active part of it right? right and they're and they're learning from each other not just from the teacher and uh you know the teacher can can give some guidance around what they're talking about and and obviously kind of prompt what some of the, the discussion is. But what, what happens is it gets kids ready for what they're going to do in real life, which is they're going to discuss with their colleagues and with different people what's, what's going on and give their own analysis and their opinion and have to choose when to speak and when not to speak. And they learn all those things through doing it instead of through a class discussion, which is the teacher saying, who wants to answer this question and just three or four kids raising their hand? For sure. And I think that like, especially today, that like a bubble ideology can be a really harmful thing when you don't put yourself out there and allow skeptics and people that have differing points of view to challenge you and to ask questions and to say, hmm, well, I thought things would go like this. Or how do you account for a situation that maybe this happens? So like, I'm a libertarian, so I deal with that kind of stuff all the time. People are always asking, well, how would this get taken care of? How would this get taken care of? You know, who would do this? Who would pay for that? And so it's always forced me to actually really think through these topics a lot more than if I was just studying this kind of stuff for a test. Um, so having these kind of conversations and just really having to defend or to challenge other points of view, that's like a very heavy part of critical thinking that I think our society right that's now right. is like kind of insulates itself into bubbles and into confirmation bias and things like that. And so I think that these ideas are like just getting kids accustomed to being challenged and having to think through it instead of reacting emotionally or to remove themselves from that challenging situation because it goes against whatever they believe in that moment. I think having them used to those kinds of conversations is just really powerful in and of itself. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think it's, yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it's just another way to get kids engaged in, in what they're doing and give some of their 
personality uh, to the to the condition, no matter. How. There's no better thing than getting kids actively involved in discussion and giving them a voice in what they're in what they're learning and what they're saying. You know, choice is important, but I think voice is just as important. And so, giving those those opportunities for them to talk is is a big piece of getting kids engaged and motivated and inspired. One hundred percent, because they that's one of our jobs as teachers is to help kids find that voice. And so, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, you know, you said that they get out of high school and they're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do next. And there's nobody there to tell them what to do next. So when kids have that personality and their voice and their opinions developed, then they can take that and make that next step in their life. And, and it becomes a lot easier for them than if they're just you know, waiting to, uh, to be told what to study to pass the next test, because that's not how the world works. Yep, you nailed it. So I think that that's, I mean, there's a lot more that I'd love to talk about, but I think that's a great spot for us to to leave off. And if there's anything else that that you'd like to, you know, have a final word on and say, you know, here's the main takeaway, your you know overarching philosophy, anything like that, you know, you have the floor right now. So I'd love to hear like what your if everybody takes away one thing or anything like that, what do you have to say? Yeah. So I guess my my big kind of push would be, um, you know, when me and you were in school, right? nobody knew that these jobs that we were going to have existed, right? Nobody, I'm a director of technology and innovation. That didn't exist. My previous title as an innovation specialist didn't exist. My previous title as technology staff developer didn't exist. You know, I'm in middle school, you know, worried about not dying playing Oregon Trail. Uh, and my teachers could have never predicted, right? My teachers could have never predicted what they were preparing me to do. And yet pretty much all of school is focused around um, preparing kids for college and career, preparing them for the next grade, for the next thing. And yet we're preparing kids for jobs that don't yet exist using technologies that haven't been invented in order to solve problems that we don't even know are problems yet. And so if you take anything away, I want you to take away that the shift is we are not preparing kids for something. We're helping kids learn to prepare themselves for anything because we don't know what's coming. And our goal is to help them get prepared for anything. Uh, and in order to do that, they need to do the learning and own the learning themselves. And not just learning, but also the creating and highlighting and improving and iterating and launching to an audience. So that's the big piece that I, I'd want anybody to take away. Beautifully said. I mean, that is just a really powerful, succinct way to put everything and to, to wrap it all up. And I'm, I'm glad that you put that out there because that's an awesome little way to, to remember everything that we're preparing these kids so they can do anything, not preparing them for specific things. I think that's just a really powerful, I know I just kind of butchered the quote and didn't say it as perfectly as you did, but, but I, <laughs> but, but my audience gets the idea and they heard you say it. And, and, uh, and it's just, it's, I read that on your website somewhere and I meant to bring it into one of these questions, but I guess I, I didn't do that. And I just, I'm really glad that you brought it up yourself because I, I love that phrase. So AJ, thank you so much. I mean, your approach to learning, everything that you mentioned on this podcast is so phenomenal and it's really gonna allow our students to, to change our world. And just in this conversation, I mean, I've benefited so much from all these ideas and I know that our audience has benefited tremendously too. So can you tell them where to find you on social media and where they can buy your books and any other plugs that you would like to throw out there so we can all learn more from, from you and your experiences and all this knowledge that you have? 
Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find as long as you know how to spell Giuliani. I'm AJ Giuliani everywhere, ajgiuliani.com. I'm at AJ Giuliani on Twitter. Um, I'm at AJ Giuliani on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Google+. Uh, so anywhere uh, you type in AJ Giuliani, good thing there's not too many of us out there. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys and, and check out some of the free resources and then books I got out there as well. And we'd just love to hear kind of what you're working on and, and hopefully uh, our community of learners, we've got a lot of them that are doing this work, uh, can kind of come help out as well. Perfect. And I'll put all the links in the show notes to all your books and all your Twitter stuff and, you know, make sure everybody can spell your name. So we'll be good there. So thank you so much, AJ. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking with you today. So thanks a lot. Really great hey, time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on and hope everybody has a good one. Wow. What an awesome episode. I really hope that everybody got so much out of this and really learned and took away some strategies that they can use that you can use in your classroom hopefully starting tomorrow. So there was so much, I might have to go back and listen to this episode again myself because there was so much in this. I really hope that everybody took something away. I'm gonna leave links in the show notes to all of AJ's books, to everywhere that you can find him online. And please reach out to AJ, tell him what works for you, what you heard that you really, really loved. And I'm sure he'll be happy to get back to you because he's just an awesome dude. And plus he's an Eagles fan. so. Let's hope that the Eagles win the Super Bowl. Uh, when I'm recording this, we are still a week out, but by the time this goes up, the Super Bowl will be over, and hopefully the Eagles will have their first Super Bowl championship, and I know that will make me and AJ very happy. Hopefully it makes a lot of y'all happy too. So thank you for listening, and I hope that you are one step closer to making the classroom of your dreams come true. Please follow us on social media, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and the email list. And until next time, keep rocking.